This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Steve Love, CFO of Dialpad, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 302. first thing that I did when I joined, I, I reviewed all of the most current forecasts that have been developed for the business. These are the long-range forecasts plus the in-year forecasts and also the risks and opportunities around those forecasts to really understand what was actually a realistic picture of the near term and the long term. And what was clear from that exercise and clear very, very quick was that um, there was a very large gap between what I felt was realistic terms of what the business could deliver both in the short term and the long term and what the business was forecasting probably about four to six weeks after I took the role in May in 2015 we triggered a profit warning for the marine division which was quite a severe one where we wiped out more than half of our profits uh, estimate for the year uh, before our interim results came out it was very important that we recalibrated the reality with the business in order to actually tackle the restructuring actions we would need to do thereafter. From the Middle Market Executive Digital Network, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Declan Guerin, CFO of Rolls-Royce Marine. That's the portion of the giant manufacturer that produces maritime equipment and propulsion engines. The latest chapter of Declan's career offers many leadership lessons and what he has to say about the importance of communications and courage in challenging times you won't want to miss. Our discussion with Declan begins after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. Yeah, I suppose a little bit of background first. Um, of course, my name, Declan Gearin, sounds, uh, certainly the Declan part sounds Irish, so I've spent half my life growing up being educated in Ireland uh, and qualified there as a chartered management accountant and then I spent the second half of my life actually living outside of Ireland uh, working in various uh, 
and living in various other countries, including 20 years living in Belgium and uh, probably within that time also about 10 years working outside of Belgium for various multinationals. So uh, in, in terms of career milestones, I would say becoming a chartered management accountant was really the foundational aspect. But uh, then I would say the other sort of elements that have helped draw me into a CFO position have been very, very significant international exposure uh, and uh, the gaining of international perspectives through actually living in in, in foreign countries. Uh, I've also worked across uh, B2B services, uh, uh, industrial goods, uh, startups uh, and other types of companies that have been uh, domiciled from the US to Germany to Belgium to the Nordics. So very significant broad industry exposure as well. And then lastly, I've also worked significant chunks of my career outside of the finance function in uh, M&A business development and strategy. So I would say those sort of three elements have helped me to become a rather, I suppose, rounded business executive with good international experience and also good experience outside of finance, which allows me then in terms of the CFO role to be a very good file and business partner to the business functions within the business. So when you arrive at uh, Marine, uh, at Rolls-Royce, what, what is the type of job you want to create for yourself? Yeah, and I've been at Rolls-Royce actually today two years. So it's an anniversary of sorts. And when I joined the company, and specifically to our situation, the markets that we are involved in, which are mainly around the oil and gas sector, collapsed and we've been dealing with the aftermath of that for the last two years but immediately on joining what I wanted to have in terms of a function was one that was focused on performance and driving performance management uh, and clearly being a partner to the business in that regard as opposed to just looking after the numbers which is also important. Having a function that is lean and agile and nimble to move with quickly changing circumstances and also to have a highly motivated team with a very open and transparent operating culture. And that last point is actually quite important to me because, of course, uh, when organizations are under pressure, you need to know what the issues are very, very quick and work on the issues as opposed to the individuals uh, in the organization. So it's really important to have that open and transparent culture. However, that's not necessarily what I found when I joined. I actually found that the function in many respects, was uh, broken and needed uh, open-heart surgery uh, whilst we tried to fix many other things in the organization as well. Now, can you tell us a little bit, what, what's the nature of the, the business for uh, Marine at Rolls-Royce? Well, the nature of the business is we basically make various types of propulsion systems for offshore vessels, merchant ships, ferries, fishery vessels. So it's really playing into the uh, maritime equipment. And when we look at those types of equipment, when we talk about propulsion, it's engines, drive shafts, propellers, rudders, it's uh, deck handling equipment, cranes, winches, uh, and such things. Uh, and also, uh, increasingly, it is uh, around automation uh, and control systems for for ships as well, bridge systems, and other things. So that's very much around the equipment. And then we also have the service and aftermarket for that. Uh, and then in addition, we also do 
similar types of equipment for defence naval markets. Our, our business historically has been, for its majority, heavily exposed to the offshore oil and gas sector. And uh, one of the challenges we've had, certainly in the last two years, is we had an offshore bubble that was driven by the oil prices above $100 through probably 2009, 2010 to 2013. And thereafter, they rapidly collapsed down to as low as 30 and are currently at about 50. So since 2013, we have lost half of our revenue. We've gone from £2 billion down to £1 billion. And in parallel to that, we have been trying to transform our business to be a lot more lean and agile to deal with that new reality where we have only 50% of the revenue we had in the good years. So it's very much a, a restructuring and transformation story for us, as well as trying to figure out what new markets might be available outside of our historical core business. Can you offer maybe some perspective here as far as uh, the industry is concerned? I mean, in the history of the company, is that type of event you, you just described rarely experienced? And uh, I mean, the company lost half of its revenue. Um, or are these sort of cataclysmic events more common in this industry? Well, the, the, the shipping industries and the maritime industries tend to be heavily, heavily cyclical. Uh, and certainly, if you look to offshore, it's driven off the, the oil and gas market uh, cyclicals as well. And then on the merchant side, uh, global trade. And then on the defense naval side, well, that's probably geopolitical developments. Um, so it is a highly cyclical industry. What's different this time is that the merchant cyclical downturn and the offshore cyclical downturn have happened at the same time. So it's been a, a double hit. And specific to our business in Rolls-Royce, we, uh, uh, in comparison maybe to other industry players, have had a fixed cost base point that has been quite a bit higher than the uh, industry normal uh, situation. And in the upturn, that was very good for us because we did an enormous amount of operating leverage that we could translate to cash flow. But in the down cycle, as severe as it is, we've been caught a little bit with our pants down uh, and very quickly our revenues went below our break-even point. Whereas many other players in the industry tended to have fixed that problem through previous cycles and had lower break-even points than we have had. So we've been trying to work through that over the last two years to fix that. And to put it into perspective, we have gone from about 6,500 employees down to about 4,500 today. By the end of the year, that'll be even lower again. We've taken out about one-third of our uh, fixed capacity and facilities and factories and many other costs along along the way to try to fix that. So it's been quite a dramatic impact on our business. Now, you came from a, a different industry altogether, is that correct? And what, you know, uh, we're always curious how you make your way from one industry to the next. Is there, um, what brought you to Marine? Well, I suppose there's, there's a common red thread if I go back through my career. So prior to joining Rolls-Royce, I was the CFO of a Finnish company called McGregor. doesn't sound very Finnish, but uh, that's who owns it. And they're involved also in uh, the shipping and maritime equipment markets. So that was my most direct relevance to that. And in prior to uh, that role, I have worked in uh, various industrial goods 
uh, businesses, but for the most part, they've either, either been exposed to or directly involved in global trade or logistics. So uh, in cargo tech, that was mainly around port equipment. So that's on the port side, handling equipment there. Uh, Caterpillar, when I was there, uh, it was in their third-party logistics business. So this is warehousing and distribution, which again is into sort of logistical flows. Uh, and then the 10 years I had at DHL uh, is mainly around air, air freight, air express, but also around uh, ocean freight as well. So a lot of these roles have touched on the global, global trade, shipping types of industries and the logistics and supply chains built around those. So quite different flavors in terms of the daily work, but in terms of the macro drivers driving each of those businesses, they tend to be the same. We've found it interesting to listen to a number of our guests share how they first uh, detected the downturn. What were the measurements or indicators that they understood <laughs> that there was some economic collision coming our way? What would you tell us uh, as far as what happened in this industry what what were some of the indicators perhaps that you uh used and perhaps you helped you predict uh nothing good was coming you were to look i suppose for the offshore industry for uh, a few sort of trends that will tell you that you've got problems looming one i suppose was the very quick collapse in the price of oil in the summer of June, June, July 2014, where the price of oil went from above $100 down to very quickly $40, $50 in the space of three or four months. Uh, and didn't seem to be budging from that. In parallel to that, we could see a massive buildup in a, in a inventory. So there was a far more supply than demand in the oil industry. Uh, so that was basically telling us that the price was going to be lower probably for longer. And then in addition to that, we could see an enormous buildup in capacity in shipping markets that had been built based on the speculation that oil would stay above $100 for, for longer. Uh, when the rug was pulled from under that, there was a massive overcapacity in terms of uh, installed uh, base in shipping that needed to be worked through. So it was a bit the perfect storm. That, uh, that we needed to work through. Then when I came to Rolls-Royce, it was clear that they were probably six to 12 months behind on their trajectory of thinking about what needed to be done and what the sense of urgency was. Uh, so for me, it was very clear that first and foremost, we needed to get that burning platform out there and very, very quick so we could start to take uh, some real aggressive actions rather than incremental actions to deal with that. So as a, as a finance leader who steps into the CFO role following such an event, one would imagine your agenda might have been pretty straightforward. One would imagine cost-cutting was sort of at the top of the list. But what were your priorities when you, when you land at Marine and, and step into this role following such an event? I think first, firstly, it's really around clarity. And our situation... Uh, was very challenging. However, I think there was maybe a lack of clarity or a lack of uh, 
acceptance of reality in terms of how the business reacted to this. And of course, they were doing actions to try deal with it. Um, however, we were being the business was being far too optimistic about how deep the downturn was going to be and how quick it would come back. And the first thing that I did when I joined, I, I reviewed all of the most current forecasts that have been developed for the business. And these are the long-range forecasts plus the in-year forecasts and also the risks and opportunities around those forecasts to really understand what was actually a realistic picture of the near term and the long term. And what was clear from that exercise and clear very, very quick was that um, there was a very large gap between what I felt was realistic in terms of what the business could deliver, both in the short term and the long term, and what the business was forecasting. Uh, and with a sense of urgency, that needed to be corrected. Uh, and I think the, the challenge that I had was to kind of get what that realistic picture was very, very quick, uh, because as a public company, of course, there are external uh, pressures too. And probably about four to six weeks after I took the role in May in 2015, we triggered a profit warning for the Marine Division, which was quite a severe one, where we wiped out more than half of our profits uh, estimate for the year uh, before our interim results came out uh, in July 2014, which shocked, I suppose, the Marine business uh, that action was really needed because, of course, our profits disappeared after uh, in the space of four to six weeks after I joined uh, because of that one action. But it was very important that we recalibrated the reality within the business in order to actually tackle the restructuring actions we would need to do thereafter. So the move was really to, to put the bad news out there and let people grasp the situation fully so they can adapt and uh, take on a new mindset if necessary. Am I, am I summing that up all right? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's right. And, of course, every new CFO coming into a function will probably do the same thing. They'll look at the balance sheet to see what risks are there. They'll look at the forecasts. They'll look at the operating risks. They get their mind around things. And it's not unusual for a CFO to try maybe reset or recalibrate what the forecast might be thereafter. However, in terms of our company, uh, at the time, there had been a history of not necessarily questioning targets coming from the top, say, they're given and building forecasts to meet that expectation rather than maybe truly getting a grip on the issues. So it was a very important thing for me to send the message to the organization when we reviewed the risks in the business that the messenger did not get shot or that I didn't send people back to say, not good enough, try again, that we took them and we analyzed them, we worked through them and we did something with it in order to sort of reset the business because if you ignore the reality then actually all that you're waiting is for time to catch up and then and, and then you can do nothing about it anymore it's in the past so i'm wondering what then are the are, are the metrics then what are you what are the numbers that you're looking at daily as you go forward um that will give you some sense of how the company is weathering the storm yeah and I, and I think it's, it, first of all, it's quite sobering for an organization that maybe allowed itself to get, I wouldn't like to use the word arrogant, but was very proud of what it had delivered in the past. And when you come up with a set of forecasts that say, hey, 
you're going to lose money and here's how much you're going to lose and we need to do something quick to fix that. That focuses the mind very, very quick in the organization. Then in terms of the sort of things we look at and in our industry, of course, uh, important metrics are really around order intake. Is your book to bill increasing or decreasing? So are you replacing the revenues you have or are you contracting? That's something we look at quite frequently. Cash and cash conversion, uh, because of course cash pays for all the investments and everything else you need to do. And then our transformation targets uh, in terms of headcount reduction, footprint reduction, uh, and whatever else that may be, is quite important for us to track as well. But probably more important is what comes before that uh, in terms of how you set the targets. And it's quite hard to imagine a business that has one billion pounds of revenue not being able to make money. But of course, if you come from two billion pounds very quick, that can become a reality very quick. So we try to focus the organization around a very clear transformation program that looked at uh, you know, what we needed to do in terms of cost reduction, uh, what we needed to do in terms of targeting new markets, where we needed to still invest in terms of R&D and capital investments because the business had been starved of proper investment for a long time. And also actually, quite importantly, what we needed to do to calibrate the culture of the business to what we would call a high performance culture because if you don't get that right, it's very hard to deliver on the other things. And a lot of our effort has been invested to really getting the culture uh, aligned to sort of what we would consider uh, high performance. So this is really around transparency, openness, empowerment, and other things. And we've tracked our progress as well towards the, the culture aspects as well. And that, that actually has borne quite a lot of value along with the harder metrics around headcount reduction and other things. Now, does the group uh, share uh, culture in common with you know, greater Rolls-Royce, or is it sort of a, uh, in some ways independent as well? Uh, yes and no. So, you know, as a group, we have five divisions which have certain similarities, but also uh, can be quite different. So the similarities is, of course, that we're mainly, you know, an engineering company doing high-end engineering for power solutions. Uh, but if you look at the divisions we have, the largest one is civil aerospace, so it's making jet engines. We've got defense aerospace doing similar stuff for, uh, uh, for military purposes. Then we've got uh, power systems, which makes uh, a more volume producer of, of uh, diesel engines. Uh, we've got a nuclear division that's making a, a various set of control systems for nuclear power plants, but also makes the, uh, the uh, propulsion system for the UK nuclear deterrent. And then we have Marine, which is making uh, propulsion systems, uh, etc., for for Marine. So they're quite different in their own way. Uh, and then in terms of our footprint, uh, if we look at the larger part, which is civil, is, is mainly a UK company and a UK culture with quite a large footprint in the US and some, some in Germany. Uh, but if we look at Marine, our main sort of employee pool of footprint is probably in the Nordics. So in a sense, a large part of our culture is more Nordic than British, whereas other parts of the group are more British than anything else. And then in terms of maybe, you know, the kind of operating language and how we work within the group, there are certain commonalities there as well. 
Um, but we have our, our own sort of, a, I suppose, 70% marine culture and then 30% is the group overlay, which is not unusual for large sort of industrial companies with multiple divisions. GE is probably similar in a way as well. Your effort to create a more uh, performance-oriented culture, did this just begin with more uh, employee reviews? Where do you begin when you say, okay, I'd like to take this to the next level in terms of performance? It begins with the people. What, what, what's the path? Yeah, and I, I think when it comes to people, uh, often that's, the, that's the, the element that's left to last. Uh, and companies start to look on metrics and KPIs and many other things that, that you need. However, in my view, the horse needs to be before the cart in pulling. Uh, and it shouldn't be underestimated the power of a, you know, a highly motivated and uh, engaged workforce, especially through a downturn. And we've lost one third of our employees in the last two years, but our engagement scores have improved significantly. And even with leaner organizations, we actually are making decisions quicker, we're getting work done quicker, and we're also, um, uh, I would say, uh, having people's workloads more balanced than what they were two years ago. So we stripped out a lot of layers and spans and complexity that were in our, uh, our people uh, structures, and that's allowed the business to flow quite a lot. But in parallel to that, we have rolled out across our entire employee pool a very structured, high-performance culture training, which is all about how people work together, how they work in teams, how we tackle difficult problems together, the kind of uh, culture we want in terms of transparency and openness. And that's resonated quite a lot with the group as well, uh, if I look at the broader pool. And then we've also been very purposeful in terms of peer-to-peer uh, -peer coaching and also in terms of mentoring. And if I take an example on mentoring, I mentor probably... I think it's two people within Marine outside of the finance function. And then I mentor two or three people outside of Marine, but in the finance finance function across the wider group. So that, that's sort of four or five people directly that I take. And that's similar for other uh, executives in the company. Then I also, as part of my function, uh, of course, my first line uh, is about seven people in finance and they have about 40 people reporting to them. But twice a year, I commit to talking one-on-one -on -one with each of those 40 people face-to-face -face just to understand where they're going in their careers, any issues they have, and other things. So we take this performance aspect quite serious in terms of the discussion, the dialogue, the mentoring. And in parallel to that, of course, we have the, uh, the performance discussions, the objective settings, the objective tracking as, as well. Then outside of Marine, we also, as a group, have invested quite heavily in the top 150 people in the group leadership uh, in terms of uh, training and development. And all of us have spent three or four weeks during the course of 2016 uh, going through uh, Said Business School in Oxford uh, through a specific training course uh, designed with the business school uh, for Rose Rice. So we've done a lot of development on the people front, and clearly getting that right, a lot of the performance stuff and the culture you want in terms of performance will come after that. It delivers more results than just looking at the hard metrics themselves. You, met, you mentioned that you mentor yourself. You mentor two people outside of Marine. Are they outside of finance as well? 
Um, no, uh, the, the ones outside of marine are within finance, and the ones within marine are outside of finance. So that's how we do it. So there isn't a sort of a, a direct line reporting relationship. Uh, so the two pe uh, so you have two that are not in finance that you're mentoring today. It, it, it's it's quite interesting how these mentoring relationships pair up because mostly we put the invite out that we're willing to take mentors, I mentees uh, on board. So the four or five people that I do, they've all contacted me directly and asked would I work with them as a mentor. So they obviously see from whatever interactions that I can add some value to that relationship. And then, you know, as a, as a good CFO, the business partnering aspect of my job is quite important. I think that would resonate with any other CFO you talk to. So we generally have a fairly broad business perspective. And for the most part, CFOs operate as a number two to the CEOs or presidents of their businesses. So we, we, we have that, that uh, exposure. Then in terms of when you mentor somebody, more often than, than not, it's around the soft skills and what, how we can work together to help them realize their potential, uh, their ambitions, maybe some difficult interpersonal issues they're dealing with, how to work with governance, uh, rather than the deep content of what they're doing, because clearly they're experts in that category. And of course, as the more senior party to the relationship, we can offer them a lot of experience and advice in, in that regard, but also mostly it's around asking them open questions so that they can kind of come to the conclusions themselves. Then the flip side of it is, for me, this is a great insight uh, into maybe a more grassroots level in the organization so that I get that two-way feedback in terms of also, you know, what they're doing and understanding maybe what the reality of daily life is in the business, uh, getting some feedback on the leadership team of Marine, are we performing as we should? Are there any white spots that it'd be good to address, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really a sort of a two-way dialogue. Uh, and for, the, for many parts, it's not necessarily deep into the business aspects. It's more around the other aspects. We always like to ask for a finance strategic moment. And sometimes, uh, Declan, it seems like I've already gotten the, uh, the strategic moment from the guest before I get to the question. But let us know if that happens. But I'll ask the question outright. Can you share a, a story of a time in your finance career when you had a, a finance strategic moment? And by that, we mean a, a moment of strategic insight that uh, later led you to maybe point the organization in a new direction or maybe it pointed you uh, to a new opportunity or maybe there was a risk that uh, you saw and decided needed to be responded to. What would you share with us? Uh, maybe a few things, if I might. So firstly, uh, equality. And, you know, I've learned through experience that courage is one of the most important qualities you can have, and especially in a function like finance where you have a lot of visibility to a lot of, a lot of things. And by courage, I would mean not being afraid to question unrealistic forecasts or expectations, not being afraid to raise your hand if you see something going on that's not quite correct in terms of uh, values or, or ethics or many other things. So to call it for what it is, uh, and I learned that lesson quite early in my career uh, from, from the perspective of maybe seeing it not displayed where it should have been and also seeing the response 
when I've had the courage to maybe do it myself. So um, it's it's very very important uh, because if if we don't do it, nobody else might, and the consequences could be quite severe. Uh, for example, in Rolls Royce, we we have uh, recently uh, reached a what's called a deferred prosecution agreement with a serious fraud office in the UK for for past transgressions that maybe crossed that ethical line and where courage maybe should have been shown and it wasn't. But eventually somebody did blow the whistle and uh, that was quite um, important. So that I would sort of recommend to anybody that don't just sit on the sidelines, put your hand up and show that courage. Uh, a lot of people act out of fear that the consequences might be that the company singles them out or that their career stops in that company. Better to know sooner and later if your values are not aligned to the companies and find somewhere where they are. Uh, so th that's a quality. Then maybe as a sort of a moment of strategic insight, if I could. And a lot of big corporates are very, very good at making plans. And we have lots of review levels in those plans and people who need to sign off on them and everything else. However, I would always sort of ask and say that you know, let's not sort of boil the ocean when it comes to planning, but also to maybe ask two things. One is, what is the context behind this? What are we trying to achieve? Is there some business objective to all of this? Is there some market objective or strategic objective? Or are we sort of just gone into planning and have lost maybe the reason why we're doing it? And assuming that the business context is right and the plans are good, let you know, you will never be able to get 100% right in a plan don't even try, go for 70 or 80% right. But then what's really important is, is to be able to make a decision and execute on those plans because a lot of companies find that step quite hard as well to take the hard decisions that might be needed and we'll end up going around for another round of planning. When it comes to the organization's workforce, uh, do you have a set of priorities as a finance leader or how would you uh, characterize your, your role as it relates to the workforce? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, if you look at any organization, you need to have a healthy mix of what I would call backbone, the people who get the job done day in, day out and do it well, and stars. And the stars you have in an organization need kind of careful management. But what you're trying to do with stars is, I suppose, it's, if you looked at it another way, is getting the right balance as well between experience and potential and with the stars you're trying to get them to realize their potential without them maybe uh, becoming hard to manage or high maintenance so that's where the coaching comes in and then with the experience and the backbone type resource you also need to keep those motivated and actually engaged because they're maybe not moving as as quick and in terms of the whole management uh, talent management part you need to have a, a good balance of both within that and also you need to be consistent with how you manage that pool and also have a relatively healthy churn of people through the organization. All of us are just passing through. So an organization that maybe gets stale or doesn't have too many outside influences isn't good either. So it's, it's a bit of a complex one, but it's something that I actually invest quite a lot of my time in because if I get that right, then I have an organization that's working well, that's motivated and delivering. That allows me a lot more time to maybe work on the bigger strategic issues, understanding the context of our situation as it is right now, and maybe pulling those levers that I'm best placed to pull. How do you know that uh, 
the ta your talent management is working? I mean, is, are there particular metrics that you're looking at that tell you, or is it uh, less about metrics and more about what you observe and, and how people collaborate? Yeah, the, the sort of raw metrics tell you something. So, you know, we track yearly engagement scores, um, but they can be quite challenging to understand what they really mean if you're restructuring and a third of your people are fearful of their job. Uh, we also track things like, has everybody got objectives set uh, and such things? And then we do the performance reviews and we track the scores and that. But they tend to be kind of more static, uh, fixed points. Uh, and for me, it's really around understanding our people uh, and understanding who are the ones who have high potential, who are the backbone, and having that ongoing dialogue and trying to, as much as possible, engage with the people to understand uh, the more daily sort of aspects of their jobs. And then in terms of working with them to try and maybe make their lives easier and understand maybe the pressures uh, and such things in there. So it's something that is a mix of both hard and soft. But uh, I kind of like to know like a good football manager, you kind of want to know your players on the on the team and also on the bench and how that's moving. And you also want to know who are the players maybe on your development teams coming up. So it really has to be hands-on and you need to get quite close to it. Okay, we're going to now enter the mentoring round where I get to ask you uh, several quick questions uh, to allow you to offer advice to aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Well, the word excitement and finance and business is uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron, but one of the very interesting developments we have if we look forward is how will the digital world impact finance? And of course, we're using all sorts of systems and tools and everything else uh, on our function, but how we can use robotics and automa automation to maybe remove some of the uh, efforts and elements from the monthly cycles, the monthly reporting and everything else, even including having uh, robots do uh, management reporting. And I've seen that demonstrated recently in terms of putting together maybe 80 or 90% of the management reporting packs we do or the performance management packs we do so that all that's needed is final review and edit. That's quite exciting because what that does is it allows us to be a lot leaner as a finance function, but also allows our business partners in finance to concentrate their time on supporting the business with real value-added work rather than sort of having their lives in Excel and PowerPoint for five days every month. So that's an exciting development. Now, what do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? What would that a piece of advice the first time you stepped into the, the CFO office what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? I think each time I've taken a new job, certainly, you know, CFO functions, you, you, you have this feeling that, oh, God, they will find out that I, I'm not really as good as they thought I was, uh, and, uh, and maybe I'm not going to be that successful. And so that's a normal and good fear to have. Um, but also I would say, you know, uh, as you move forward, you develop more confidence uh, in your abilities to do the job uh, as well. I think it's important to maybe trust your own judgment and your own confidence rather than sort of say, listen to, well, the people around you say, well, the guy before you did it like this, 
or you know these members of your team might need to be changed and everything else to take the confidence to sort of find things out for yourself uh, and make your own judgments even going into a new job where your predecessors might have been very good so to 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 believe in yourself uh, and have some courage around that that's the courage word again but also to be a little bit careful not to become arrogant so to maintain your modesty uh, and uh, you know to listen more than maybe you talk and to listen to the people in the job and in the function uh, first before you jump to judgment. So I think there's a few things around, you know, having courage, having confidence, but also keeping your ego in check and remaining, and remaining modest in function. Now, is there a personal habit you ha- that you have, you believe, that's contributed to your professional success? Probably, um, I think having spent half of my professional career outside of the finance function has sort of, you know, it's given me other perspectives, but what it has meant is that most of my direct reports probably have two times as much years clocked up in finance as I have in pure finance. And one of the things that I I have done uh, and I always do is, you know, I tend to sort of allow them to do their jobs because I know they can do it better than I can. Uh, and, and that's allowed me to basically as a, you know, one of my habits is to, to trust them to do their jobs well, which has allowed me then to have a lot of time to work on my, my role as a business partner. So that's sort of a, a high level macro. Then in terms of, you know, more day to day work, uh, there's so much going on at any one time. It's quite important to remain organized. And it's different for everybody. Some people are extremely structured in how organized they are. I'm not. So I tend to rely on my team to, to keep all the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted in terms of the governance and the statutory and the filing and everything else, which they do very well. Um, uh, but I tend to focus very much on the bigger picture stuff as much as possible. Uh, but I tend to write everything down I need to write down and I, you know, in, a, in, in my journal or log, but also on to-do list, to-do lists and other things, and go back on that quite regularly. It's quite, it's quite easy to lose track if you don't do that, but you have to clearly demarcate what you do versus what your team does, because it's not a good habit to keep dipping in and out and taking control when you feel like you should and delegating when you don't have time. You have to be consistent in terms of what your, your team's job is uh, and what you take centrally as a CFO. And a CFO is not a controller. Uh, most of us have controllers, and you need to let them do their job too. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I, w- I would um, maybe talk about two books, and maybe one links back to maybe kind of a, an a eureka moment that we talked about earlier, and it's a very simple book called Who Moved My Cheese? And I would recommend everybody to read it. You can buy it at most airports. It'll take you about 40 minutes to read it, but it's all about change, and change is explained in a very easy and simple way. I read that book uh, whilst going through a restructuring process when I was in DHL, which I was uh, maybe coming uh, on the negative side of that, but was quite instrumental in forming my thought about change uh, and what I needed to do. That's a book everybody should read. And then 
uh, maybe a book that I have also found very useful and I've gone back to a couple of times is a book called Execution, The Discipline of Getting Things Done. And that was written by Larry uh, Bossidy, who used to be uh, the uh, CEO of Honeywell and also a management consultant called Ram Charn. Uh, and that was also quite formative for me in terms of, you know, getting out of this kind of cycle the corporates have around planning, 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 but never actually doing anything, and how successful leaders execute, and, and leaders who stumble tend to not execute. So there are two books that uh, are good to read, and then I would also encourage uh, people to read uh, outside of the kind of finance function, to read history, current affairs, uh, many other sort of things, uh, fiction, whatever it may be, that helps build perspective too. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Yeah, I think the most immediate priority that I have is to close out on the restructuring program where currently uh, getting through um, and that is already delivering what I'd like to call an agile and lean finance function that is flexible, that uh, has courage, uh, that's empowered and many other things but we need to push it through to conclusion during the course of this year. We also need to make sure that our cultural realignment in terms of the desired behaviours we want actually starts to stick in the organization and we don't need to come back and uh, constantly uh, um, reaffirm what that might be. We will still have to do that, but it needs to become instinctive. And then lastly, that we really truly deliver a finance function that are working as business partners with the respective management teams that they are, they are embedded on so that they're seen as maybe the first to go to person for information, data, but also insight on the strategic side, um, uh, performance management, and other things. So we need to kind of push through and close out on that this year. And if we do that, in a way, my job starts to become extremely easy. So it's then mainly around maybe managing up the food chain in terms of performance and governance, but also really around making sure we also get the, uh, the talent pipeline uh, in good shape and working as well as it should be. Declan Guerin, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, 
it's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that, 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs from episodes you already listened to but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's, that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening. Thank you.